as somebody who moved around a lot growing up and somewhat of an introvert, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, but I did find at least one friend wherever we moved to, and that friend became a good friend, of course, until the cycle started all over again, and we moved, and then I looked for another friend. Let me tell you about seven different friends. Most of these at this point are more acquaintances than friends. They all have one thing in common. They're all professing Christians who over the years have struggled with being a Christian, struggled with their faith. All at different levels. Eric loves God's word very deeply. He's unashamed of Christ and he always has been. He's been diligent, successful in his work. But even though they refuse to promote him on account of his Christian beliefs in his work. He's been marginalized in the business community as well, in the Chamber of Commerce for his views. And as faithful as he has been, and Eric has been faithful, something is off in his spiritual life. His eyes don't light up when you talk about Christ with him, and he's grown a tad bit harsh with others. As long as I've known Sandra, she's been a faithful, loving sister of Christ. Even in public high school, I would get off the bus and she and I would put our Bibles at the edge of our desk in public school just as a silent witness to Christ. But Sandra is now struggling. There are other professing Christians who've actually turned on her a bit. Whenever she posts something online about biblical Christianity, other Christians come at her. At work, somebody's turned her into HR. She she now might be facing legal action because her beliefs run counter to company policies. She really has been blameless in all of this, but now Sandra is understandably afraid. She feels alone, and even friends of hers that have called themselves Christians have now started to distance themselves from her. Patrick, he's moved away since I've known him. All of these people have, or I moved away. Now he lives in a dangerous place where there's the rioting all around him where he's gone back to post-grad school. He's had a vibrant testimony for a long time, but lately I've been noticed, I've noticed he's been asking if the morals he grew up with are projections of his own upbringing, maybe even harming other people. Online, he's been sympathizing with stories of ex-evangelicals sharing stories of their past. He's posted some pictures of some weekend parties that he's been going to that look a little sus. But then he posts pictures the next morning of his worship service and how good church was. And then there's Tara. Tara is known for her patience. She's always been known as being a caring person who loves to serve people and help the hurting. Always a big hearted, caring person who will talk to you about God once you bring him up. People like her for all of those reasons. Plus, she always has a fresh perspective on something that's interesting, always has a good book. But the last few years, Tara has been showing a growing sympathy, or at least I'd call it a public silence about things the Bible forbids. It's confusing at times because you can't really pin her down. She started to share her pronouns as a way not to offend. She posts transgender stories to show compassion. She'll post a gay pride month during the month of June to make sure all of the oppressed are seen. And most of her Twitter or X, whatever it is, Instagram posts, are now about how churches and historic doctrines from inerrancy to anthropology to heterosexual male ordination harming, is harming others and causes abuse. Then there's good old Sarah. Sarah came off as the ideal Christian. She's never been a problem. She makes good grades. She helps other people. She's an all-around good kid 
who always was at church. Everyone sees her as a Christian. She's blended in. But beneath it all, Sarah doesn't really believe much of any of it. Philip was kind of shy. He's from a broken home. He's now in the middle of his career. He's still single. He still has few friends as an adult. He's been in the same small church that he helped plant for 25 years just by being faithful. Philip is rock solid and faithful when it comes to Christ, never popular, always faithful, and his love for Christ is tenacious and undeniable, but he's getting a bit weary. Two more friends. Leo. Leo was always on fire for the Lord. His family now is wealthy. His family pictures look like the ones you see in the brochures. Back in high school, he was always the stud. He's now head of his company. He's very skilled at CrossFit still. But ever since COVID, he's not really been back to church. It's hard to know if COVID revealed something in Leo's life and gave him an excuse or caused him to succumb to a way of thinking that church is now an online community. When he does come to church, he's either right on time or late, comes for a special event, but he always catches a service online. He says he's not hostile. He doesn't question anything. He's amenable. He's friendly. He's just, well, lukewarm, you might say. Now, what would you say to all of those friends? I forgot one, I think, but that's okay. Maybe I didn't. I said two more friends and I just said, Leo, it doesn't matter. You've heard enough about these friends. Sheesh, Keisha. All of them at various levels are struggling with Christianity. What do you think they need? What would you say to these kinds of friends? Well, now I know I told you these are my friends. What if I told you, you know, people like these two? What if I told you that like John and Revelation, I was just using a literary convention that each one of these people stands in for one of the seven churches to whom John writes to in Revelation 2 and 3. What I've tried to do is map my literary friends, some it's real and not real, onto the situations in the seven churches in Revelation, and you can go back and look later and see how close or how far I got. Eric was from Ephesus, Sandra is Smyrna, Tara is Thyatira, Patrick is Pergamum, Sarah is Sardis, Philip is Philadelphia, and Leo is Laodicea. Well, why have introduced the message this way? Because the book of Revelation is not written to help us prove our viewpoint of the end times. And it certainly wasn't written to sell charts at prophetic conferences. (laughs) Revelation was written to churches like ours so that we would hold fast to Christ in furious days and warn those who aren't. At varying levels, each of the seven churches, as we'll see, is being tempted and tried to let go of Jesus. So God stirs up John to write an entire book, not just chapters two and three, to local churches. Why? Because God wants John to write a letter to churches to encourage them so that they will worship God until the very end, especially in the face of societal pressures, small or great. He wants to encourage churches like ours to hold fast to Christ in furious days. In fact, the end of the book summarizes the whole message of the book with this command an angel gives to John, worship God to the end. Would you please turn to the last book of the Christian Bible and the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. We're going to turn back to Revelation 1. This is more of an expositional overview this morning. 
Here we're going to see the emphasis of worshiping God. Before you read any book, just to remind you, you'll always read the beginning and the end of the book and note any similarities. Because as we've learned, and I'm sure you're learning again as you're studying Mark in Sunday school, that, that how a book opens and closes, its top and its tail, often reveal the author's emphasis. So Revelation 1 and 22 echo each other with nearly identical language. The two ends of the book encapsulate the emphasis of the letter of this book written to seven churches. So you're in Revelation 22. Look at verse 7 with me. As the book comes to an end, Jesus Christ begins to speak. In verse 7, here's what Jesus says. Revelation 22, verse 7. Here is Jesus' words to John that he wants him to write down. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus says, Jesus, who's called the lamb 27 times in this book, Jesus says this book is not about knowing exactly when I come back. It's about keeping my word. The lamb says I'm coming soon. And blessed is everyone who keeps the prophecy, the words of this book. In other words, we could put it this way. Revelation is an urgent exhortation to listen to the Lamb. What is Revelation? It's an urgent exhortation exhortation to listen to the Lamb. And now John's going to respond to what he's just heard. What he's just heard and the entire book. And then an angel gives a command to John because John responded in the wrong way. Look at verse 8, how John responds to what Jesus just said and to this entire revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. According to the end of verse nine, as this book comes to an end, if you've lost your way in all the visions and fantastical beasts, what is the point of this entire book? The angel tells you worship God. That's the point. Everybody in life is worshiping something. Doesn't matter if you're here this morning and you're Christian, you're you're entertaining Christianity, you're not a Christian. Everybody worships something and you know what you worship by what gets you out of bed or what keeps you in bed. What makes you really happy or really sad is what you worship. And Revelation ends because it's the last book of the Bible. It's ending the story of the entire Bible with this same message. Worship God. That's the heartbeat of the book. In some ways, it's the heartbeat of the Bible that beneath every one of our sins is a great temptation. And what is the temptation in the midst of all our sin? Worship something other than God. Worship yourself. Worship your career. Worship sports. Worship comfort. Worship fitness. Adam and Eve failed because they did not treasure God as supreme above everything else. And they didn't reject God. Adam and Eve were not atheists. They were not even agnostics. They just worshipped something else along with God. That's idolatry. That's sin. Not giving God the glory due his name. Not worshipping us supremely and exclusively. So as the Bible closes, we have a return to the one sin beneath every sin that caused it all. Worship. We have a return to the one thing that we were created for. The one thing that you were saved for. Worship God. And who needs this message? 
We'll look down, verse 16, for a final word from Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Do you see that? We tend to think, at least I often tend to think, that the only part written for seven local churches in Revelation is chapters 2 and 3. We tend to think that Revelation has some far-off application for the future. But as Revelation ends, what's Jesus telling us? He's telling us this entire 22 chapters was meant for those local churches. And what's the one thing the believers in those local churches were faced with? Will you worship God and the Lamb until the end or not? So the book of Revelation is an urgent exhortation to listen to the Lamb, to worship the Lamb. It's for churches who are tempted and tried, for people who are persecuted and persuaded to let go of Christ. Now, the God of all grace, full of all wisdom, knowing the temptations and pressures that churches like ours face, gives a letter to John so that churches then and now would hear and and heed the urgent exhortations, hold fast to Christ. I'm coming soon. For now, I want to summarize the message of Revelation like this. For now, because as we go along, I might change it and tweak it, and maybe you'll give me better words to say, and that's fine. But here's the overall message of Revelation. I'll put it like this. Revelation is urgent encouragements and warnings to worship the Lamb and keep His word. What's happening in Revelation? There are urgent exhortations, urgent warnings to do what? To worship the Lamb and to keep His words. It's all about worship, and it's all about worshiping the Lamb and keeping His words. Well, now that we have the end of the book in mind, let's go back to the beginning, and you're going to see almost the same language identically. Please turn now to Revelation chapter 1. From this point on, I want to speak in three main categories. I gathered with brothers on Friday afternoon to application, and my plan was to get expositionally through verse 8. I think I got through like verse 1.2. So this is more of an expositional overview this morning of what we have. I want you to think this morning an expositional overview of the design of Revelation. I want you to think of the audience of Revelation, which we've already dipped our finger in, and the aim. So the the design of Revelation, the audience, and the aim. Let's read Revelation 1, verses 1 to 8, and you're going to hear things we just heard that are reminding us the emphasis of this book. Revelation 1, starting in verse 1, this is what Holy Scripture says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who are hearing and who are keeping what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, 
He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are on Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So the design, the audience, and the aim. First, the design. The design of Revelation as, we mentioned this word last week. I'm not trying to geek anybody out. You've heard it. If you haven't, it's apocalyptic literature. Now that word apocalyptic, your Bible's open, comes directly from the very first word of the opening verse. Revelation 1, verse 1 says, the revelation. And contrary to our, our understanding, revelation, apocalypsis, doesn't mean hidden and mysterious. We tend to think when we hear apocalyptic that we need some hidden cipher to discern some deep Bible code shrouded in mystery. But that's all wrong. It's true that Jesus used parables to hide truth from believers. But that's not what Jesus is doing in Revelation. Jesus is doing the very thing the title says. He's revealing. He's not concealing. The word doesn't mean hidden and mysterious. It means what our English word means. Revelation. It's an unfolding, an unveiling. It's not a concealing, but a revealing. You don't say, I was working really hard on this math problem or how to put the carburetor back together or whatever it is. I don't know how to do either one of those. But you do one of those. I'm working really hard on this. And then you say, and then I had a revelation about my project. And someone says, really, what was it? And you say, you don't say, I don't know, it was confusing. A revelation reveals something to you. That opens something up. That's the very word of the idea here. So the first thing we need to know about the design of Revelation is that God is being gracious to us because God wants to reveal himself to us, not conceal himself from us. Well, how do you know that? That's what the very first word of the book means. An unveiling. He's making himself known. In fact, he's making himself known and he's coming for you. Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come at you? Are you ready for the Lord God Almighty to come after you? He's going to unveil himself and do it. So in Revelation, the opening word itself tells us the design of Revelation is that God wants to reveal himself. He wants to open up his plans and his purposes meant to encourage our perseverance. And all of those plans and all of those purposes are bound up with Christ himself. Because the opening line says, this is a revelation. Not of when, but a revelation of who. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That may change the way you read this book. It did for me in the 90s, sitting in a Greek exposition class in the book of Revelation under a professor named Mike Barrett when he said, do you realize this is a, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ? Beloved, the opening line of the book tells you don't look for a when, but look for a who. Look for a person. The revelation of Christ could be taken in one of two ways. It could be taken, this is the revelation about Jesus, or this is the revelation that Jesus gives. Well, it's certainly a revelation that Jesus gives. 
The flow of these opening verses in this chapter is that God gives a revelation to Christ, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to his servants. This indeed is a revelation belonging to Christ that he gives. We'll see that true in chapter 5, because Christ and Christ alone is the only one worthy to take the seal from the one seated on the throne, the scroll, and open the seals that would reveal God's purposes of judgment and salvation. Indeed, only He's worthy to unveil God's plan. This is a revelation that He gives. It is indeed that. Only Christ can reveal it. Only He can unfold it. And yet... All of God's plans in this book come to pass in Christ and because of Christ. So, at the end of chapter 1, chapters 9 and following, what we have is an actual unveiling of Christ, a revelation of Christ as the surprising Son of Man who's risen and reigning with the keys of death and hell in His hands. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we have another unveiling of Christ, a revelation of Christ who's the only one worthy to take the scroll, who's at one look at him, he's the lamb, the lion, and then you keep looking at him and he's the lamb standing as if he had just been slain. And this lamb standing as if he had just been slain has actually redeemed people by his blood. And then in Revelation 19, you have another revelation and unveiling of Christ. There he comes on a white horse with eyes of fire, his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies with the sword swinging and slaying as he goes. The Son of Man, the slain and risen Lamb in chapter 19, has kept all of his receipts. And now in chapter 19, he comes riding on a white horse as a warrior with the furious wrath of God Almighty. And across him is written, this is King of kings and Lord of lords. These revelations of Christ, about Christ, as a surprising son of man, the slain lamb and the warrior king sustain the entire book. And they're meant to sustain us too. So the design of Revelation is a book in which God reveals himself to us. Secondly, it's a book in which he's designed Christ to give it and Christ to be the focus of it. It's a revelation of Christ. So. Revelation is is like one of those I spy books. Or where's Waldo pictures. Where you look for Christ, not because he's hidden Because he really is there. Don't lose sight of Jesus with all the other stuff going on. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, we could say, if this book is meant to reveal something, then why is it so confusing at times? It's confusing because of the means God uses to unveil his purposes in Christ. In other words, that first word of revelation not only refers to what God is doing, unveiling, but how he's doing it. That is through a literary form known as apocalyptic literature. So revelation is confusing, not because God is hiding, he's revealing, but it's confusing because in part we don't know how apocalyptic literature works. We don't read it often enough to know what it does. Or if we do, we don't like it. That's what I don't like science fiction. I like biography. I don't, I don't like poetry to say what you mean. I don't know what that. So we're, we're either not familiar with it. Or we don't like it. And therefore it's confusing, not because God's confusing. But God has chosen in his wisdom and in his grace to give us an unveiling of Christ 
through a kind of literature known as apocalyptic literature. And that leads us to the third thing you need to know about the design of Revelation as a literary form. We pointed out last week, it's highly symbolic. What makes Revelation hard is two things. One, we're not steeped in the Old Testament. And two, we don't understand how the literature as a form works. But the good news is you can work on both of those things. Read the Old Testament and learn how the literature works. You see, John speaks, somebody has said John speaks in Greek, but he also speaks in Old Testament. And if you want to understand Revelation, don't read Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series. Don't listen to Brad Baum. Read the Old Testament if you want to know how to understand Revelation. The key to the symbols in Revelation is the Old Testament. It's also difficult because, I said, we're largely unfamiliar with how it works. Think about it. I can at least, I mean, I know what it is, but I can't off the top of my head. You can't identify, let alone write or explain a limerick or haiku because we're not familiar enough with the literary form and how, I know this is a poem, but that was a limerick. Oh, now I see. Well, I still don't see, but I'll take your word for it. Much of our confusion comes not because God is hiding something that only a 30-day fast with essential oils and notes from the Schofield Study Bible will reveal, but much of it is confusing because we fail to understand how apocalyptic literature works and the Old Testament images upon which it's based. So God intended to reveal himself. The design is to be all a revelation of Christ. And the third thing to know is that God has chosen to reveal himself in a literature, literary form that's highly symbolic. Last week we saw this, didn't we, in Revelation 12? We saw a story involving a dragon, a pregnant woman, a baby boy, and a lamb and a wilderness. And it's all symbolic, all in the same story. But what does it mean? It just means, beloved, that we know how stories work. There's a plot arc, there's characters, there's a scene. We know how poetry works using meter and rhyme and parallelism and thoughts, but we're not as familiar with how this kind of literature works. It's not a cookbook with clear directions. It's not a chronological Lego instructions for how do you make the Death Star. But once you learn that this is a literary form that functions like science fiction, or a graphic comic book that communicates through symbols and images that can shift and intensify as it moves along, then you can start to come to terms with the book. The more you know what the text is and the strategies to use, the easier you can understand it. And the text itself, not only is this kind of literature symbolic, but I want to show you with your eyes that the text itself is telling you you should treat this book symbolically. Look again at verse 1, down in verse 1, Revelation 1. In the middle of the verse, John writes that God, or Christ, the ESV has, has made it known. You see that phrase? He has made it known. He has made this revelation known. And that phrase, made it known, is actually the word signs. If you were here through our series in John's Gospel, you saw that word ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Remember that John arranges his entire letter around certain signs that Jesus did. Jesus' miracles were signs that signified something about who he was. So you didn't look at the signs, you looked through them to see what was significant. Well, now this word translated as made known 
as a very close form of that word sign that John uses as in gospel. In fact, in the magisterial King James translation, Revelation 1, the translators handle it like this. Not he sent and made it known, but rather King James has he sent and signified. Do you hear the similarity? What this means is that God is making himself known in this book, not through poetry, not through stories. He's making himself known, not through miracles. He's making himself known through the signs and symbols in the book. The very opening words are giving you, telling you, read this book in this way. We do interpret the Bible literally and also according to the literary type that it is. So it might be more accurate to say that when you read Revelation, when you read Revelation, you read symbolically. Unless there's some hint to read it more literally. That's how the literature works. That's how the opening verses are working in the book. So God, God, what he, he is portraying what actually exists. What's true? It exists in space-time history, but the vision itself is simply a medium that God uses to transmit what's true. So the design is that God will reveal himself. The focus of this design is a revelation of Christ and it's highly symbolic images filled, uh, intensifying as they move along, rooted in the Old Testament. Now, before we move to the audience of the book, I want to give us one example of the symbolic nature of the book that's confusing, but we don't we shouldn't overlook it. And it has to do with numbers and automatically your eyes glaze over maybe like a Krispy Kreme donut that's been on the conveyor belt too long. He just said numbers in Revelation, not again. Well... Not only are people and symbols symbolic in uh, apocalyptic literature, but so are numbers. And it's a function of the literature itself, especially when those numbers repeat. In other words, the numbers that are important in Revelation are there, not because we found some cool connection, but because they repeat. Now, I, somebody sent me this, what do you call it? I don't know what it's, vine, text, whatever it is, gif, gif, whatever. Send me this last night and said, this is how some people read the book of Revelation and it has to do with who's going to win the Super Bowl. Here it came in last night. Apparently there's a recording artist who must not be named who's going to the Super Bowl. And 13 is this recording our special number. Did you know she's going to the Super Bowl and the team she's cheering for will win because the number of 13 is showing up in uncanny ways. She's only been to 12 football games in her life, and tonight will be her 13th. She's flying from Tokyo to Vegas, and the flight lasts, no joke, 13 hours. The Super Bowl is taking place in the second month of the year on the 11th day. 11 plus 2 equals 13. And the team she's cheering for is playing against the 49ers, and 4 plus 9 is 13. Therefore, the chiefs will... And there were more of them in this video. Now, that is how some people read Revelation with random numbers to confirm their biases and suspicions about what they think is going to happen. That's not what I'm getting ready to tell you how numbers work in Revelation. Numbers are important in apocalyptic literature because the literature itself works symbolically, just like poetry uses rhyme. And you know which numbers are important and symbolic because they repeat. Hey, numbskull, look at this number again. The numbers are 4 and 7 and 10 and 12 
And multiples of those are symbolic in Revelation. Because the literature is asking you to take it that way. And they're repeated again and again. So, for example, in the verses we read this morning, the number seven appears twice in the verses that we read. Look at verse four. John writes to whom? Seven churches. And at the end of verse four, he moves into a benediction of grace and peace from God and from Christ and from the seven spirits, which we'll see next week. I think based on Isaiah 11 is referring to the Holy Spirit. And as you move on into Revelation, there are seven churches, chapter two and three, seven seals, chapter six and seven, seven trumpets, chapter eight, seven angels, seven plagues and seven bulbs, 15 and 16. You tell me, is the number important? Is it symbolic? You see, it's it's way the whole book is structured. And not only are there a series of seven objects repeated in sets of seven, some phrases appear seven times that are unmistakably repeating. So in verse three, God offers a blessing for all who hear and keep his word. Well, that blessing appears seven times in this book including at the very end. And the one at the end matches the beginning. Now, why seven? Well, seven symbolizes completeness. It's the, it's the number of the days of creation. And number four symbolizes the comprehensiveness of the messages coming from the four corners of the earth. And 12, now you don't have to think too hard. 12, there are 12 tribes of Israel and there are 12 apostles. And when you multiply 12 times 12, you get 144. And then you set it in apocalyptic literature, what's highly symbolic, and you multiply by 1,000. And you get 144,000 or a multitude that nobody can number. It sounds an awful lot like all of the redeemed people throughout history whom no man can number. So as the, and even 10 stands in for fullness, good or bad, the 10 commandments. Daniel said when they found me after this, this diet that we had 10 times better than all the rest. It's a fullness, it's completeness. So as the Bible comes to an end, it's no wonder that as it comes to an end, it's comprehensively, completely, perfectly bringing all things to a conclusion for the just and the unjust. And one way you know it's happening by the repeated numbers of four and seven and ten and twelve and the multiples of it. The point is that the conventions, beloved, of the, the, the genre itself and the text of verse three helps us be aware that God now is not communicating through stories and characters. He now wants to communicate through images and symbols, much of which, if you've read your Bible, have been happening throughout the one story that is the Bible. So we've seen the overall flow of this book as an urgent exhortation to listen to the Lamb. Urgent encouragements and warnings to worship the Lamb and keep his words. We've seen that God wants to reveal himself, that it's a revelation of Christ, and he's using highly symbolic nature to unfold his plans to us, to invite our interest. Now, I want us to think about the audience of the book. Now, I may have lost you in the last several minutes. Maybe it sounded like an academic lecture. It was kind of sterile. That wasn't the point. But I want us to see, by thinking of the audience again, that John's point is actually deeply pastoral. He's not writing for the classroom. He's writing writing for people in the pew who go to work and don't know if they'll keep their job by some new policy that's being enacted. John writes, as one commentator says, not as a modern theologian, but as a pastor, encouraging suffering believers and exhorting complacent ones. He has a pastoral point. 
It's given to him from God himself. Do you remember all those friends I mentioned at the beginning of this, this, this sermon? They all represented churches who were facing troubles. I want to show that to you briefly. At the end of Revelation, you've already seen that John says, that Jesus says, I'm giving this message to churches. Now as the book opens, John tells us who his audience is. According to verse 4, who is his audience? The seven churches of Asia. Now, to us today, that sounds like the Far East, but in John's day, it's, it's our modern Western Turkey. So John's audience is local churches. So whatever our applications are, whatever interpretations, they need to have made sense at some level to those who first heard them because they were hurting and confused and ready to give up on Christ. It just helps us understand the book and apply it more faithfully. And it's not only local churches, but local churches who share one thing in common. They're all facing trouble. And the first hint of that comes from John's own self-identification in verse 9. Look at verse 9. John identifies himself as what? Your brother and partner in tribulation. Now, by using the word partner, John is showing you that when you read this book, that both he and those he's writing to are in tribulation. They're in trouble. And whatever tribulation is to come and an increase in the book, John says, I'm a partner with you in the tribulations and sufferings we're already experiencing right now. Revelation is a present word for persecuted churches. It's a present word for troubled Christians and churches. Well, what suffering is John facing? Well, John writes he's being punished for his Christian beliefs, exiled on an island called Patmos. Now, today, Patmos is an island of Greece in the Aegean Sea. But then it wasn't a place you took on a tour of the Holy Land and the seven churches and to see where all this is really neat and nice. And oh, it's so beautiful. Now, and that day, this is where Roman emperors like Domitian exiled their prisoners. So Rome has exiled John. Why? He's told you, I'm here on account of the word and the testimony of Christ. And why are you seven churches suffering on account of the word and the sufferings of Christ? Now, just, just, just sample the first three churches so you put your eyes on what they're facing. Look at chapter 2, verse 3, the temptations and tribulations they're facing. Some are social and some are physical. Chapter 2, verse 3, to Ephesus, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you've not grown weary. Drop down to verse 9, the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander against you coming from those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. That's Christians who call themselves Christians persecuting true Christians. Pergamum, verse 13 of chapter 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my fellow witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You see, beloved, whether it's the threat of death like the church in Pergamum or searing slander from other Christians for their beliefs or shame for holding right doctrine in Ephesus, each one of these congregations is facing a temptation, facing pressure, sometimes from within and without, to let go of Christ or just not take him so seriously. Whether external threats from Rome Worship something along with Jesus. Internal threats, friendly fire from other people who call themselves Christians or internal threats of false belief and behavior that are wrapped in the virtue of love and hospitality. These churches are facing mounding pressure to let go of Jesus. 
We might say in ways we talk about it now because in our day we have to call everything by something that sounds sophisticated so we feel better about something that's actually sin. So in our day what we would say is these churches and the members in them are struggling with deconstructing. They, like we all do, feel alone and abandoned at times. They're being pressured and persuaded at various levels just lighten up or just let go. I'm not telling you to stop believing in Jesus. Just put a flag on your desk this month. You don't have to deny Jesus. Just offer a small pinch of incense this week to the emperor. You see, beloved, I'll stop making this joke because I don't want to make it a joke because there are people who take this book really seriously when they're trying to figure out when Jesus came back. And we should be thankful that people are taking the Bible seriously. I mean that. I want to make fun of people for trying to figure it out sometimes. But but the audience of the book tells you the audience of this book is not people in a prophecy conference. They're members of churches who are tired and they're tempted to give up on Jesus. That's who gets this book. And I want to say how much God loves members of local churches. He sees them. He knows their temptations. He knows that churches then and now are are being tempted to give up. So he's filled an entire book with images. And he says, don't let go of Jesus because you're almost home. An urgent exhortation, warnings to churches tempted and tried. Instead of giving in, hold on for I'm coming soon. So this is a book written for us. He wants us to look away from the sufferings which are real, not ignore them. But a societal pressure can mount by month in in the world and and prayers for relief in your life right now are unanswered and are piling up like like voice messages you left for somebody that aren't you're not hearing back from. As friends and family once seemingly Christian are now falling away or other church members are starting to embrace the lies of the dragon in the name of virtue It all happened then and it happened now. And what we need, God says, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what you need. We need a sight of Christ, the lamb who was slain for sinners and now stands over them, interceding for them. We need a sight of Christ risen from the dead as the sovereign son of man with the keys over death and hell in his hands and a vision of Christ as a warrior on the back of a white horse, swinging his sword, ruling as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the renewed vision that we need. What those seven churches needed is a grand and glorious unveiling of Christ as he is in all of his resurrected glory now. It's full of his images, full of encouragements, full of warnings to worship the lamb and keep his word. And this takes us finally to the very aim of the book and this chapter. Look at verse 3. What's the first word of chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed. You see, here's another indication that the Lord doesn't give us revelation to confuse us. He wants people now and then who are hurting and confused, who are wounded and weary from believing in Jesus. He wants them to be comforted. So he says, blessed. He gives us this revelation because he wants us to be blessed. And what is the blessing based upon? A blessing that's going to reappear seven times in 22 chapters. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those presently who are hearing and who are keeping what is written for the time is near. Now think about how this is working. You know, they didn't have Bibles in the first century. So when somebody shows up to these seven churches with not just these letters, but this entire book, they open the scroll and they read aloud the entire contents of this book to the churches. So the promise to the one who reads isn't to you reading with your earbuds and Starbucks and you reading it. The promise is to the one who stands up and reads out loud in the presence of God's people. And those who are hearing then are those who are hearing God's word read aloud as the whole bodies gathered together for worship. Now think of that. This then is not so much a promise for you to read Revelation out loud to yourself. Though read every part of the Bible out loud to yourself because Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates and reads the word. Every part of the Bible is good for that. Every Psalm 1 says that. It's a totalizing psalm. But the truest blessing of Revelation in verse 3 comes best and dearest and deepest in the context of a local congregation. Blessed is the one who reads and the congregation who hears and heeds. And you see the blessing is not only in hearing, but it's in the keeping. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps my word. You see, in this first chapter, God gives John an urgent revelation to show churches so that they will hear and heed Christ's word to the end. And then here's a promise. And blessed are those who do. You see, here's how it can work. You think of how it works in your life or in the life of a church. The world, the pressures of life, just general pressures and rhythms of life, people at work, family, they can tell you Directly or subtly that if you just stop believing or, or, or taking Jesus so seriously, things could very well get easier for you. Office parties and wedding invitations won't be so awkward if you just lighten up on Jesus. You can get promoted or maybe at least keep your job to make a living for yourself and your family. You can sleep in on Sunday and get ready for the hectic work week starting with Monday tomorrow. You can actually leave your marriage because it's making you both unhappy. And if you're both unhappy, it's not good for either one of you or the kids. So you can leave. You can sleep with your girlfriend because it's your body and your choice and your life. Life, listen, Bro, life will just be a little less stressful and you won't have all that religious anxiety. You'll, you'll probably find yourself to be a nicer person. Just give yourself a break. Just try it out for a week. It might be good for you. Just go ahead and give in. Or something else with Jesus. Now that kind of tempted and tried believer and those pressures are real. To that kind of slander church or believer comes a revelation and a promise for one who says, I am the one who is, who was, and is to come. And everything that you're hearing are lies. Revelation says that beneath them, what you need to know is a scaly, scary dragon dripping with blood from his teeth. You will not be damned. Damned be that temptation. You will be blessed are those who hear and keep this word. And those who trust in me will never be put to shame. For blessed are those who hear and keep the words of this testimony. For I'm coming soon. 
To such a believer comes a Trinitarian promise, a divine empowerment of grace and peace. So don't give in. Hold on. And blessed are those who do. Now, you know, you know how one way, one great way you and I will be able to keep his words to the end while the pressure mounts. You know how it won't be a matter of willpower or knuckling under. It won't work. It won't work long enough. You'll hear and heed by remembering how Christ has revealed himself in this text and throughout this book as the one who is loving us and has freed us by his blood. We are loved with the only love that will last forever. You are freed with the only freedom that will last beyond every boss and every marriage and every election cycle and every world ruler. A freedom that lasts bought by his blood. Now think it, do it, think of it this way. Maybe I can come at this point this way. That the way that you hold fast is by thinking how much that he loves you. And then you won't let go. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that if you know how much somebody loves you, you'd do anything for them? Isn't that true? If you know how much somebody loves you, you'd do anything from them. Think of your mom. If you didn't have a good mom, think of what a good mom should be. I think of my mom. I thought of my mom yesterday. As my mom spent the last 40 days of her life in a hospital bed, the object of misdiagnosis and malpractice, there was nothing my sister and I wouldn't do for our mom, even when the the rent-a-cop security came and tried to pull us away from the hospital bed. We would endure everything for mom. Why? Because she was our mom. And we knew how much she loved us. How could we give up on her when even to the last breath, my mom was speaking words of love? You see, because you know, when you know how much somebody loves you, you will endure everything for them. Now listen. Now listen. The love of a mother is nothing compared to the love of your Savior. Do you see that? The love of my mom ended when she died. When my mom died, her love died, and I still miss it. But when Jesus died, I don't understand it, but his love grew, and I have more of it. Do you see what happened? Do you see what happened at the cross? That Jesus loved you to the end and out the other side so that you could keep his words to the end. The accuser has been replaced with the intercessor And the creator has become your savior. And if Jesus then didn't abandon you and the deepest darkness any human being could ever experience, if Jesus didn't abandon you in his deep darkness, why would he abandon you now in your darkness? Oh, Emmanuel Bible Church, how he loves us. And blessed are the ones who hear and keep his words.